And this morning I wanna talk to you about uh, an adventure. I wanna talk to you about a story. It's actually a love story, but it's a love story in maybe a little different way than you would think. It's the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. Well, the Gospels, the four Gospels, the four stories of, of Jesus' life and ministry, two of them, Mark and John, begin when Jesus is grown, when he's 30 years old and he begins his ministry. But the other two begin a little earlier, and it's interesting the way they begin. They begin with two individuals. Let me tell you what I mean. In the Gospel of Luke, it opens with an angel, Gabriel, coming from heaven, going to a little town called Nazareth, up in the northern part of Israel, to a, an unknown young woman named Miriam. That's her name in Hebrew, and it comes to us in English as Mary. And the angel Gabriel speaks to this young woman and said, Mary, God has blessed you. God has shown you great favor, for you will be with child, and you will have a little boy, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and he will sit on the kingdom of his father David, and he will rule for all time. The Spirit of God will overshadow you and you will be with child. And Mary's response to me is just as remarkable as the angel's pronouncement to her. Her response is simply this, I am a servant of the Lord, may it be to me as you have said. Let me translate that a little bit. I am a servant of the Lord, thy will be done. Wow, that is one of the greatest statements of faith in all of the Bible. But as long as we're here, I wanna pause for a second because that little interchange with the angel saying, you have found favor with God and Mary saying, responding in faith, I am a servant of the Lord, is the gospel in a little conversation. Think about Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. This is talking about salvation and it says, you were saved by grace through faith. Now what you may not realize is that word favor is the word grace. Translators translate it into English instead of saying you have found grace with God, you've found favor with God. They mean the same thing, but it sounds a little bit better. And so what do you see there? You see God's grace being given and Mary's response being one of faith. That is salvation, that is the gospel in a nutshell. Every one of us at one time or another will have an announcement made to us, probably not by an angel, but you've heard Marty announce this to you many times, is that God has poured out his grace on us. And our part is do we respond like Mary in great faith or do we turn away? Well, Mary responds and that response of faith altered the course of her life. You see, she was betrothed, a little more than engaged. I mean, she was committed to marry Joseph, and that couldn't happen anymore. She was gonna be with child. She was a respectable girl. That wouldn't be the case anymore because she was going to be with child. In fact, if Joseph was angry and if his family made a big deal of it, Mary and her family would, would have to leave. They would have to flee town. But meanwhile, Matthew tells us what's happening with Joseph. 
You see, when her husband Joseph found out that she was with child, the scripture says he was a just man and he had no desire to bring shame on her. And so he resolved to divorce her quietly. In other words, he was a just man in this sense that he had no desire to shame her. He would, he would walk through this shame and quietly accept his portion of it. But that very night, in a dream, an angel spoke to Joseph. And he said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The child that is within her is of God. She will give birth to a son and you will name him Yeshua, Jesus, which means God saves. And the angel goes on to say, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And you know, something remarkable happens again. The scripture says, very plainly, without any fuss, that when Joseph awoke, he got up and he did what the angel told him to do. So this story of Joseph and Mary is a love story, but it's maybe not your traditional love story. You see, I'm sure Joe was handsome, Mary was a pretty girl, and I'm sure that they loved each other. Uh, they probably didn't know each other as well as we typically do before we get married, and I'm sure they had feelings for one another. But if you think about it, there's something more going on here, isn't there? Because warm, fuzzy feelings were not gonna be enough to get them through what was ahead of them. They were gonna be outcasts, they were going to face shame, and they had no idea of the danger ahead of them. And yet they responded in faith, and they began this journey. You see, our culture has a, in my view, a kind of an impoverished view of what love is. I mean, we tend to think of love as an emotional phenomenon, and that is part of it, but that love is the essence of passion, of happiness, of highs, and pursuing the happily ever after dream. Or our culture tends to equate physical relationships with love. And while in any romantic relationship, emotions, of course, are important, and passions are important, and when a man and a woman are in a marriage relationship, of course the physical relationship is important. But what's going on here, and I would argue, a much deeper and more textured idea of love, and this is what the Bible means when it talks about love, is what Mary and Joseph had was commitment and loyalty and allegiance and trust in God and in each other. And this is a love that carried them through everything that was ahead of them. And I'm gonna to suggest to you that this is an idea that we need to recover. Because the impoverished idea, the thin idea of love that our culture has isn't enough to get us through this time period. It's not enough to get us through the marriages, it's not enough to get us through our friendships, it takes this level of commitment and trust and loyalty. Think about the powerful love relationships that we don't talk about so much anymore. Think about Ruth and Naomi. Think about David and Jonathan. Think about the disciples leaving everything and their relationship with Jesus. Think about some of your relationships here with your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Is there an emotional component? A little, but what's really at the base? There's a deep commitment and a deep loyalty to one another, a willingness to walk the whole path together. That's love. That's what the church had in Acts chapter two. That's what you see in Acts chapter four. When Jesus said the world will know you're my disciples because of the way you love one another, that's what he's talking about. Your mutual commitment and loyalty to one another, no matter the circumstances, that's the love that you see in this story. And that's what makes it a great love story. Well, they come together just as uh, the angel said, and they are indeed married. And the census comes, and so immediately they have to travel and they begin the path of this adventure together. And I want to sketch the, the path of this adventure. <clears throat> and I mean, I literally want to sketch the path of this adventure. I want to show you the exact path of this adventure. <laughs> so this, this is a, a map of the Roman province of Judea which is the nation of Israel today. This is what it looked like at the birth of Jesus. So Augustus is on the throne of Rome, the emperor of Rome, and he rules everything. And in this particular area, he has appointed King Herod, called Herod the Great, mostly by himself, but called Herod the Great. <laughs> and he comes down to us in history as the ruler of this area. He was the king of the Jews. Well, Mary and Joseph lived up north. If you look just left of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see a little town of Nazareth. It was unimportant then. It's not that important now, but I've been there, and I'll tell you, the traffic is terrible. <laughs> but they were gonna go from there, and they had to go all the way south to Bethlehem, a little town that's a suburb of Jerusalem. Well, as the crow flies, that's 80 miles. And in those days, that's a four-day trip. They were pretty hardy. They would walk 20 miles per day. But I don't think that that's the path that they took. And there are two reasons that I don't think they took that path directly south. And I think this trip took a lot more than four days. And the first reason is this. I have traveled with a woman who is nine months pregnant. <laughs> and you make a lot of stops, okay? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Mary and Joseph stopped at every gas station for a bathroom break on that whole journey. But the second reason is this. If you go straight north to south, you go through Samaria. And as you know, the Samaritans and Jews, well, they hadn't gotten along for centuries. And so if you're traveling with a woman who's pregnant, you may need some help. You couldn't be sure you would get that in Samaria. So I'll show you the route that they most likely took. And this is the route people typically took. And this is probably 10-day trip. This is much, much longer trip. Because they would leave Nazareth and they would go east and they would go into the Jordan River Valley where travel is easy, but you could also find friendly villages and they would go all the way south, cross likely at Jericho, took the Jericho Road from Jericho to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem. This is 10 days, 14-day trip. So it's an arduous trip. And as you think about that, I want you to think of two things. Number one, Mary is one tough young lady. I mean, this is not an easy trip. And their commitment to one another immediately begins to be tested, doesn't it, with the hardships of life. Well, you know the story. When they got to Bethlehem to register for the census, 
um, their adventure continues and the hurdles and the challenges in front of them continue to mount. When our kids were little, we did Advent. We started the tradition of doing Advent uh, the four Sundays before Christmas. And I know many of you do it here and, and we try to promote it, not so much because the Bible says you need to, but it's just a wonderful way to prepare our hearts and minds for Christmas. And we and some friends of ours would get together once a week, usually on Sunday night, and uh, we and our kids, and we'd have uh, a dinner together, and then afterwards, we'd just go through a little Advent service. We'd light candles. When the kids got old enough, they're little pyromaniacs, but we would let them light the candles, and uh, then we'd read scripture, and when the kids could read, it was exciting for them to be able to read the scripture. We sang songs together, and each week we would tell some part of the Christmas story. And when the kids got old enough, maybe even like first grade or so, they could tell the story. I mean, it was a wonderful time of bringing our kids up. And I remember just thinking, man, we are just killing it as parents. You know, we are just, <laughs> we're just such good godly parents. Well, so one Advent service, we were gonna tell this story of the story of the journey to Bethlehem and the birth of Christ. And our friend's little girl, maybe first grade, and she's pretty young, she raised her hand, she's so excited. I know this story, I can tell this story. We're like, oh, wow, we're awesome. Okay, you just front, center stage, tell this story, we're so proud of you. And so she begins to tell the story of riding on the donkey and Mary, uh, you know, expecting, and they get to Bethlehem. And she says, and so Joseph knocks on the door of the inn and the innkeeper comes to the door and he says, what do you want? And Joseph said, my wife's knocked up. We need a room because she's about to have a baby. <laughs> so I just want you to know that kids, kids get more out of these stories than you think they get out of these stories. <laughs> but there was <clears throat> no room for them. And so the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings was born in a cave a manger that was being used to house animals in the most humble of circumstances. And miraculous things happened. Things that I'm sure Mary and Joseph were warmed to have their faith in God confirmed. God is so gracious, isn't he, just to confirm his word to us. As we step out in faith, there are times when he just says, I'm here and it's all going according to plan, even if it feels hard to you. Well, that's what he did there. Immediately after that, Joseph gets a dream and he says, Herod will be jealous. And Herod has heard the rumors of the king of the Jews being born in Bethlehem. You must flee immediately. So Joseph takes his little family and off they go south to Egypt. Why Egypt? They need to be out of Herod's domain. Herod had sole power in his domain. So much so that you know the story, he sent soldiers to kill every baby two years old and under in Bethlehem. Herod had no compunction whatsoever about killing a bunch of Jewish babies. I mean, by this time, Herod had killed two of his sons because he thought they were conspiring against him. Herod had killed his wife because he thought she was in on it. And it's interesting because commentators at the time I mean, the texts of the time talk about how much he mourned for her because he really loved her. Guess that's a little different, different definition of love than we're talking about here, okay? But Herod had no compunction about that, and the danger was real. And so Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt, and Herod dies. 
And so the angel tells him, you can come back. And he does. But what does he do? He doesn't take his family to Bethlehem because Herod's son Archelaus, who was perhaps even more cruel than Herod and certainly less competent, was ruling there. And so he went back to Nazareth to stay under the radar and lead an unremarkable life. Mary and Joseph's life didn't turn out the way they had planned. I mean, they had a plan that was a life in suburban Nazareth, two-car garage, soccer on Saturday with the kids, you know, just the, 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 the perfect life. And they didn't get that. You see, their response of faith to God changed the trajectory of their life. They got something better. They got a life of joy. They got a love that stood the test of trials. And they had a life of meaning and purpose. And Jesus grows in a godly home to begin his ministry. Well, that's a love story, but it's a love story about a different kind of love, a love of commitment and a love of loyalty, a love of allegiance and a love that stands the test of time. It doesn't vary just on the waves of, of emotions. It's not just a physical relationship. It's a deeper thing. It's something that pervades Christ followers. And this story, I like this story because I think it's foreshadowing the greatest love story. And that's a love story that you are part of. And so this idea of the commitment and the loyalty to one another really gets at some of the deepest needs that we have as humans. I'm gonna paraphrase Tim Keller. He's not the only one that's talked about this, but he does it so very well. And he says this, he says, the deepest need that we have as humans is the desire to be fully known. We all know that. There have been times in your life when you realize that it seems like no one really truly knows me. No one understands all that I am. No one sees all that I am. And you know what? There are reasons for that and we promote that because our other desire in addition to being fully known, is to be loved. And the problem is this, our greatest fear is to be fully known and not be loved, to be rejected. For someone to see the good and the bad and the ugly and turn away from us. And so what do we do? We settle for this kind of shallow relationships where we want the love but we can't afford to reveal everything about us. And so we have closets where we lock away certain things and we have little walls that we put up and we desire intimacy, but at the same time, we're very afraid of being known because of what might happen to us. I think this problem has only gotten worse. It's been true for all of humanity for all time. There's, I'm gonna tell you why there are so many love stories in, in human history. I mean, so many of our stories are love stories. Why? Have you ever wondered why that is? Because of this deep desire in us to be truly loved for who we really, really are. And so <clears throat> that fear, we live in that tension of fear, and that's why those stories are so powerful for us. And this is the greatest love story. I want you to imagine this for a minute. When Jesus was hanging on that cross and he was looking down at all the people that had put him there, he had no illusions whatsoever about who they really were. He knew everything about them. 
And now let me personalize this. When he was hanging on that cross, a cross which you and I also helped put him there, he had no illusions about who I really am and none about you either. He knows the good, which is not as much as I wish it were. He knows the bad, which I try to minimize, and he knows the ugly, which we try to hide away. And still he stayed on that cross. You see, with Jesus Christ, we are fully known, and we are truly loved. It is the deepest desire, and our fear is dispelled. That's what makes this the greatest love story. The Bible says it this way, and I don't know if you've ever read this carefully, but now this is gonna make a lot of sense. In Romans chapter five, it says, God showed us his love like this. Translate that. God didn't just have warm, fuzzy feelings for you. God didn't love you like the world loves you. God showed his love like this. What do you mean? This is the kind of love God had. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were unlovely, Christ loved us. That's the greatest love story. That's a story of a decision being made that you and I are worth saving. A commitment, a loyalty, a commitment even to the point of bearing our sins and dying for us. That's a life-altering kind of love. God's made the first move. You have found favor in the eyes of God. He knows you and he loves you and he invites you to place your trust in him. That's the gospel. That's contained in this story. Now what will we do? Well, that's, that's up to us, isn't it? How will we respond? Will we be a Joseph or a Mary? Will we come to God and open the doors and say, you know everything about me? I am your servant, may it be as you will. And let God alter the trajectory of our lives forever. That's the story of Christmas. We're gonna pray together and our pastors will come down front as we always do. And the reason they're there is to pray with you. If you wanna speak with God and you want a brother or sister to be there with you, you can respond today, I am a servant of the Lord, may it be to me as you have said. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious to us. And just like David, I wonder, when we look at the moon and the stars which you have made, when we see the universe, which are the work of your fingers, we really ask ourselves, who are we that you love us? And yet you do. And Father, I pray that we would each feel the peace of being fully known and let you take our lives and make us truly beautiful. We love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.